0: the gospel according to Mark. We are moving on into chapter 2 this morning. So we will read verses 1 through 12. Uh, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home And some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in a spirit that, uh, the, uh, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your mat, and walk? Maybe I should begin this morning asking you the question, have you ever seen anything like this, quite like this? If you have, please see me after the service because I would love to talk with you. He's back in Capernaum. Capernaum became became like, and this was the the home evidently of, uh, you know, The disciples of Jesus, many of those, the fishermen, Peter and and Andrew and James and John, this is probably where they lived. Becomes kind of the home base for Jesus as far as his northern Galilean ministry takes place. It's where he really started his ministry, and this is going to go on for some time. Sometimes I think people have this picture that once Jesus started active gospel ministry, that he just went about the countryside preaching, teaching, healing for three years without hardly ever taking a break. In other words, he was here to be about his father's business and about his father's business he was going to be. That he was absolutely consumed completely every day for those years. This is an example of Jesus taking time for respite. But the shame of all of it is he's not allowed to do it. In other words, we have reason to believe. The reason he was in Comperium was to get a little bit of R&R, rest and relaxation. To take just a little hiatus from the ministry. The truth is active ministry is draining physically, mentally, emotionally about any way that you can imagine if you put any effort into it at all. And I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about everybody. If you actively practice your faith, you know that there are times when you need a little R&R. It's so easy for you to lose focus. You know, it, it, you know, very often, people that are very consumed with ministry run the risk of almost losing connection because they let it consume them to the point that they're, they're not nurturing their own relationship with the Lord. But the truth is, if Jesus needed these times of respite, how much more do we the stress and strain of ministry should not surprise anyone but it often does after all we are just people certainly we have our strengths but we also have our weaknesses and we we get tired Most of you know something about me, and know, that is that I, you know, I'm a latecomer when it comes to becoming a pastor compared to most people. I was 40 years old when I was ordained. I lived in the secular world before that. I worked in the secular world before that. But let me tell you, I have—I was never as tired as I get sometimes now when I was doing what I was doing before. <laughs> you know, people that really throw themselves into ministry—they have times when they are tired and they desperately need a little bit of rest and relaxation. Some of the statistics you find on the internet in relation to pastors are very disturbing. Very concerning. I read this week that 38% of pastors contemplate quitting on a regular basis. 90% of them report working 55 to 75 hours a week. 80% believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 52% feel overworked and unable to meet unrealistic church expectations. 53% say seminary didn't fully prepare them for ministry. Like I said before, I I worked for 25 years doing secular kind of jobs. And let me tell you something, the blessings that I have received in ministry, and I want to make this very clear to all of you before I say anything else, and that is the blessings that I and Lori have experienced through ministry far outweigh any negative anything. You need to understand that. That Laura and I both, if we were given the opportunity to make the choice of whether to do this again or not, we would jump at the opportunity to do, not not do. We have loved being in the ministry as we have been. But I'll say this to you, that as a minister, some of the most heart-wrenching things that I've experienced in my lifetime have been as a pastor. And sometimes I've had to do things that I took no pleasure in doing at all. But let me tell you, again, if I had to do it all over again, I would not hesitate for a minute. Because the blessings far outweigh any hurt or harm that you experience. My greatest pleasure and delight and blessing has been being Lori's husband and the father of our children and Poppy to our grandchildren. But you guys are right behind that. Don't ever doubt it. Serving as your pastor has been one of the greatest privileges and blessings in my whole life and I still get a kick when I run into old acquaintances I haven't seen in a long time maybe I went to high school with or whatever because I grew up in Ocala and tell them what I'm doing just to see their jaw hit the pavement it's just priceless priceless But spiritual and physical respite is 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 needed on a regular basis for absolutely all of us, not just pastors, all of us. It's a requisite for anyone that engages in ministry to much of a degree at all. If Jesus needed it and the apostles needed it, wouldn't we think that we need it too? But notice here that even though Jesus apparently was in Capernaum for a little rest and relaxation, the people were having none of that. The word about him, what he was doing and what he was preaching was spreading across the countryside like a raging fire. And when people found out where he was, guess what they did? They started pouring into Capernaum. This little village became very highly populated in a very short period of time more and more people coming to see more and more people coming to hear and as they gathered what was jesus doing he was speaking the word to them the principal and primary reason he came into the world was to preach and teach But he also came to heal. He came to heal broken hearts, he came to heal broken spirits, but he also came to heal people's broken bodies. People heard about what he was doing, about how he was healing people miraculously from all kinds of ailments. And so these men came bringing a paralytic carried on his bed. Not really told anything about the four men. These could have been people that were for him. And he could have told them, pick up that bed and carry me to Capernaum. I want to go. <laughs> we don't know that, but that's not the impression we get. We get this, the impression that these men were men who cared about this Paralytic who wanted to see him to be, to be healed. Who knows how far they came, but they carried him there on there. But can you imagine four guys walking down the, uh, down the road, It's probably like a little cot, they're carrying this, this guy on and walking probably miles after mile after mile just with a hope that Jesus would heal this guy. Notice here that when they, they probably had heard something about Jesus themselves, and they probably were not just going for him, they were going for themselves. They wanted to see, they wanted to hear. But they didn't leave the fellow behind, they took him with them. We don't really know much about any of these people. We don't even know really anything about the paralytic. We don't know what kind of person he was. Was he a great guy? Was he a terrible person? We're not even told why he was paralyzed, only that he was. These men were on a mission and they were not about to let a little thing like a crowd deter them from it. The crowd was so intense and dense they couldn't get in. So they went up on the roof and they began to dig a hole through it. Now can you imagine now, we don't know exactly what this particular roof is like, but most of them, they used, very often, they had a patio-like thing on the top. Clay was one of the, 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 the building materials that they used a lot of, and we imagine that the roof is at least partly of clay. And let me ask you something. Have you ever had any dealings with clay, especially hardened clay? It is not easy stuff to work with. I, you know, I've shared this with you before. My brother and I used to dig ditches all across my parents' front yard, because we were trying to make the drain field just a little longer so the septic stuff didn't surface. So I know a lot about clay, and let me tell you, I hate this stuff. If I never had to dig another hole that had clay in it, I would just bubble over with joy. I cannot imagine anybody doing this. And it's not just a hole, it's a hole big enough to lower the guy down through it. So it's not a little teeny hole, it's a, it's a gating hole. But it shows us just how important it was for these four men to get their friend or brother or father or her cousin or whoever he was, this audience with Jesus Christ. Well, there's some amazing things going on here. One of those is this. Is, is, doesn't it doesn't kind of strike you that if maybe if we were all gathered out here and somebody, you know, four guys came up carrying a guy on a bed, don't you think we'd kind of get out of their way and make room for them to get through? Obviously, this man was in very great need. He needed to see Jesus in a way that everyone else didn't, or most people didn't. But it just goes to show you just how attractive Jesus was to people. (laughs) They wanted to see. They wanted to hear. They didn't want to miss anything. They're not going to give their place up. Even for a paralytic. But I think there's something else to consider here too, and that is this, is every person in that crowd wanted to hear what Jesus was saying and see what he was doing desperately. Maybe they were so focused on Jesus, they didn't even notice these guys coming up with this guy on this pallet. They wanted to see everything he was doing desperately. They wanted to hear every word coming from his mouth. I mean, this story tells us a lot of things, but one of those is it tells us just how remarkable our Lord and Savior actually was. And he still is. What if Jesus suddenly appeared right here in our midst this morning? How do you think we might respond? I would imagine... At least to some degree, there might be a little fear because, I mean, that's something we've never experienced anything like that in our whole lifetime. But wouldn't you want to hear? Wouldn't you want to see? Wouldn't you want to even touch the hem of his robe if you could? But Jesus, seeing the faith of these men, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Notice he doesn't say your legs are healed. He doesn't say get up and walk. Jesus' is, his, his ministry was not just about doing miracle work. All of that was secondary. His ministry was principally and primarily a ministry of teaching. Now, I would say to you this morning that we need to have a picture that covers a lot of ground because some people might conclude that the reason Jesus did this was to benefit that guy which he did but he also did it for the benefit of everyone that was there watching but you know what else he also did it for you and I so we could sit here this morning and study this passage 2,000 years later. He also did it for the benefit of every person in the audience and some of the people in the audience were scribes. And he knew that they were going to take exception to what he did and what he said. They did that constantly. It really is kind of, you know, kind of interesting what Jesus said to the man. He doesn't say, you, you know, get up and walk. You've been healed. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Why did he say that? I would, I would say he said it at least to some degree for the benefit of those scribes. Because he knew before the words came out of their mouth, he is blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. The fact that there's no record of the man who was healed saying anything uh, is in itself quite remarkable. No thank you, praise you Jesus, no nothing. But we need to remember the Bible doesn't give us a complete picture of absolutely everything. He could have jumped up and danced a jig all the way to Jerusalem. We don't know. What we know from this gospel and the other gospels combined is what God wants us to know in every situation. Now we have to remember too that the Bible's not exhaustive. In other words, we don't have every word Jesus ever said about anything. We don't have every... Thing that Jesus ever did written down at the very best we only have a glance but we need to understand something scripture doesn't tell us everything but scripture tells us everything that we need to know everything doesn't leave anything out everything that god wants us to know everything that we need to know at this point he's given to us there's a story in john 9 when jesus uh, healed a man who was born blind he didn't become blind in life he was born without sight And this is what that man had to say to the religious leaders who were questioning this whole thing that Jesus did. He says, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. In other words, he's saying, out of all the people here, you should know who he is, (laughs) and you don't. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. reality is this is Jesus did what He did, not just for that person, He did it for every person that was there that they would see, that they would hear. He even did it for us that 2,000 years later, you and I would be here this morning talking about this particular. I don't know how much you know about the scribes, that they were the ones, and, and there, there was no printing presses in those days. So if you wanted a copy of scripture, you either had to handwrite one out yourself, or you paid somebody to do it. And that's who the scribes were. They were they were the ones who made handwritten copies of scripture. And as a consequence, they became more familiar with the Bible than any of the other religious leaders. They were the experts in the Bible, experts in the law, experts in the Bible. And you have to do a little thinking, you know, as you're writing and, to be, and, and covering this stuff over and over again. You know, if, as soon as you get finished writing that copy of Mark, and you start writing another copy of Mark. I mean, they knew the Word like no one knew the Word. But that wasn't enough. There's something else that is required for anyone to understand Scripture the way that God intends for it to be understood. And that's through what we call the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. God is part of this picture in every case what I'm telling you is if you read the word and you love the word and you you feed on the word and you thirst for the word it's only because God's spirit has moved in you I read at least a few chapters of scripture every single day. You know, when I was in seminary, and and Mike's been encouraged, I'm sure, by a lot of his professors to read the word regularly. You need to. You know, when you become a pastor, you have to go through a process. And there's all kinds of requirements you have to meet for this, that, and the other. Not just having a seminary education, but other stuff too. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And when you're trying to get through the process, it seems like you're never going to get there, right, Mike? <laughs> he knows exactly what I'm talking about. seems like it's just going on and on and on and on. But if you were to ask me what I believe personally the most important attribute for any and every pastor is? I would say that it's an insatiable desire for the Word of God. That you love the Bible. That you devour the Bible. That the more you know it, the more you want to know it. What I would say is every pastor must love the scriptures. Love the scriptures. They can't can't put them down and just let them sit on the shelf. They have to pick them up and read them and be in them regularly. But let me tell you, there were times... When I was on the examining committee, when we had guys, and they've, they've gone through seminary, and they've gone through this, that, and the other, and whatever, and we're like the last hurdle they have to get through to be ordained. And I can remember this one examining, examination I was involved in. We asked a guy, can you estimate how many times you think you've read through the Bible? You know what he said to us? I think maybe Once. I couldn't believe it what I wanted to say to him is you have no business at all pursuing what you're doing you have to have this unimaginable passion and love for God's word if you don't have it please don't become a pastor That's what it's all about, is knowing and living the Word of God. Sorry, I hope I didn't scare anybody. But it's something you've got to be passionate about. And I would say it's true for pastors, but it's equally true in a sense for everybody. Every Christian should be studying, reading Scripture all the time. Not just a spurt here and a spurt there. It is food for your spirit, and you're not going to get it anywhere else. If you want to grow as a Christian, let me tell you, you will not apart from the word of God, it will not happen. If you want to be a mushroom and sit in the dark and whatever, just don't pick up your Bible and read it. Now, people don't normally deprive themselves of physical food, right? Unless we go on one of those things that we call a diet. I would imagine everyone in this room is going to eat something today, right? And we wouldn't think about not doing it, typically. Every now and then we do, you know, fast for short periods of time, that sort of thing. But we feed our body regularly. Regularly. our soul has equal need that it be fed fed by the word of God so do you do you love it Do you read it? Do you study it? The only thing I can be to you is a help. This is not something I can do for anybody. I can help you as much as I can, and there are other people here that can help you as much as they can too, but ultimately it comes down to each one of us. How many times have you read through the Bible? Maybe you did once. And you thought you'd really accomplish something. And you had. Actually, if you've done that one time, then you've done something lots of people, lots of church people will never do in their whole lifetime. So if you've read through the Bible one time, then you've accomplished something that only a small fraction of Christians do. I just want to challenge you with the idea that doing it once is not enough. I mean, you you get through it once. Don't put your Bible up on the shelf and feel like you've accomplished everything you need to in life. You need to pick it up and start all over again. There's nothing, my friends, that's going to serve you more than studying Bible on a regular basis, even if it's only for five minutes in the morning every day. If you want to grow as a Christian, that's the only way it's going to happen. If you expect me to cause you to grow, to make you to grow, I can't, you're asking me to do something I can't do. This is something you have to take ownership of. No one can do it for you. And I don't think it's all that much for Jesus to ask of us, considering all that he's done for us. Can't we give him five or ten minutes a day? Are we so busy about doing so many other far important things that we just don't have the time to do it? Let me tell you something, you can read your Bible when you're doing other things too. I wouldn't advise it when you're driving your car down the road. But you might be able to get a verse in here or there when you're more in the grass. Just watch out for the trees. The reality is most of us, we, we, we waste so much time every day doing nothing that amounts to anything. That we could be using it wisely. And one of the wisest things we can do. Is to be in the word of God. All the time. We should all be able to relate. In some way to this paralytic. Paralytic. The Lord may not have healed our legs from some affliction, but he has healed us in other ways. And one of those is he's begun the process of healing our spirit. I mean, before we came to faith, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. But the living God now indwells us. He's in us. There's not a time, we never go anywhere where we're away from God. He's with us 24-7, and he will never leave us. do that what you're constantly going to be thinking are things like I never saw anything like this but I believe it because God has said it and God has done it And that we know and understand that for every one of us there's a sense in which he brought a dead person to life. Someone that was dead to him before that is alive in him now.